It is good to be back with you. Deborah is still up in Wisconsin with our new grandbaby. And uh, if I'm really clingy and holding on to your kids, that's kind of why. But uh, it's great to be back. We made it through Christmas and the holidays. And can you believe it's January 15th of 2023? I don't know about you, but for us, it just felt like this Christmas was really worshipful. Uh, it was busy. But it was still a sweet time of worship. And one of the things that allowed us to get through a lot of the busyness, for me at least, was doing some purchasing online. <laughs> how, just a quick survey. How many of you bought at least one Christmas gift online? Almost everybody. How many bought the majority of Christmas gifts online? Yeah, almost. Okay. How many bought every Christmas gift online? Yeah, I did too. It was, well, there were a couple that Deborah picked up for me. But if she couldn't have, I would have bought them online. And none, John. Now, I just, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have ever thought that I would go buy something that I hadn't seen and touched, that I couldn't check out to know, is this really a, a good product or not? But now, with all of the reviews that we have, it's, it's a no-brainer. In fact, you, you can look at hundreds, even thousands of reviews. And not just for one manufacturer or one store, but hundreds. And so you can compare them all. And I feel like I end up with something better than I would have gotten by running around to three or four different stores. So, for instance, I bought this hairdryer for Deborah, And I know, sentimental gift. And, and there were like... <laughs> There were 16,000 reviews, and it was a solid five-star, and it was a number one hairdryer on, uh, on Amazon. And so I felt real confident buying it. And you're probably thinking, Paul, I hope you bought her something better than that. I did, I did. I bought her this dishwasher magnet. <laughs> it's nice. It's solid stainless steel. And you can flip it back and forth to say clean or dirty, it works so well that my son even unloads the dishwasher just to get to flip it. And so <laughs> it's my favorite gift. So I did buy her a few other things. But if when it, the reviews make it so practical. But now when it comes to like a big purchase, I don't think user reviews are enough. Because few people will go back four or five years later and write a review and tell us how it's held up. And so for appliances or cars or flooring, I love consumer reports. And consumer reports goes in there and they test the products. They put them through their paces and they write a very detailed review and they don't take advertising money. And so uh, I found that I've probably saved thousands of dollars over the years. And here's a plug for $39 a year, you can have online unlimited access to 9,000 products. So I like to have objective testing to decide what's best. And so these tools are great for making small or even large purchases. But what about when it comes to even more important decisions than a, a new car or, or an appliance? What about when it comes to things like spiritual truth? What tools do we have to decide the difference between Truth and error, right and wrong, best and debased. What kind of tools are there? You might say, well, we need to exercise spiritual discernment. And I agree, 
But when you think of spiritual discernment, doesn't it just feel kind of intangible and abstract? Like, well, it, it feels like what that person is saying is true. So yeah, I think discernment says, yeah, it's okay. What if there was a practical test? Something that was very objective. Something that you could know for certain this is truth and this is error. Wouldn't you want to know what that test is? I would. Because Webster's Dictionary, here's how they define discernment. They say the quality of being able to grasp and comprehend what is obscure. Well, see, that just seems really hard. But spiritual discernment can be very, very tangible. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at that. How can we test truth in a very practical, hands-on way? So we're back in our series this morning in 1 John. It's called Absolute Certainty, and it's on the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And we've been away for a few weeks with the holidays and with the sharing service last Sunday. But this morning, we're going to be looking at absolute certainty in discerning spirits. And our text will be 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. And there's three parts to the outline. First, the unseen truth in verse 1. And then the test of truth in verses 2 and 3. And finally, the standard of truth in verses 4 through 6. So, as is often the case, we're going to spend about half of our time on the first point. So, don't panic when we're still in verse 1. <laughs> Quite a ways down the road here. Um, but we'll pick up the pace from there. So I want to just start by reading through the passage together. So 1 John 4, beginning in verse 1, it said, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So we want to first look at what I'm calling the unseen truth in verse 1. And the first thing that I want us to notice about this passage is the use of the word spirit. Take a look at verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Verse 2, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Verse 3, but every spirit that does not acknowledge, this is the Spirit of Antichrist. And then in verse 6, this is how we recognize the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of falsehood. So it's talking about these different spirits. And now go back to verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see, that, to see whether they are from God. And then it says, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
So what is verse 1 warning us about? Is it warning us about spirits? Or is it warning us about false prophets? Which is it? It's both. It's both actually. And what the passage is pointing to is the fact that behind every single person is a spirit. And I want to just take a few minutes and dig into that deeper. See, you and I are made up of two parts. We, the body, which is the material part of us that we can see and hear and touch. And the spirit, which is the immaterial part. We can't see it. The real you, the real me, is not the body that we see. It's our spirit that we can't see. It's the spirit within us that governs things such as our thoughts, our emotions, our values, our desires. Those are the things that make up the real you, not your body. <clears throat> and I sometimes like to think about this whole thing, body and spirit, in, in computer terms. <clears throat> Excuse me. Kind of like hardware and software. If you're a computer person, I came out of that industry. So we can see and hear and touch the hardware. It's the material part of the computer. But it's a software that governs what the computer does. And it's immaterial. It has no mass of its own. It's just a collection of information, of data. And that's why it can be transmitted through the airwaves. Because it has no mass. Now, about two months ago, I updated to a new iPad, an iPad Air 5. My old iPad Air 2, it was getting slow and worn out, and it was time for an update. And so as part of the update, never did this for me, we transferred the data from my old iPad to the new one. But we didn't take any parts off and move them over. We didn't even connect the cable. We did it all wirelessly. And we could do that because the data has no mass. So all of my pictures, all of my videos, all of my documents from years and years and years were transferred over. And now, man, programs run really fast on this new platform. I couldn't believe it. Now here's the thing. After we put all the data in my new iPad, it didn't weigh a single ounce more. It didn't get heavier because data has no mass. And so that's the immaterial part of a computer, just like the spirit is the immaterial part of you and me. Now, I'm not saying that our spirit is just a collection of data. It's more than that because God has given us life and there's life in our spirit. That's something that data doesn't have. But even so, our spirit is still immaterial. And if you think about it, Death is simply the separation of our body from our spirit. The material from the immaterial. Our body is dead, it dies, but our spirit lives on. And in fact, one of the fascinating implications of Einstein's theory of relativity, E equals mc squared, is that things which have no mass also have no time dimension. Which means that by nature, they're eternal. So science affirms what God's been saying all along. Our souls, the immaterial part of us, our spirit is eternal. Here's the cool thing. One day our spirit will be joined to a new body, a resurrected body for those who are in Christ. It'll be a glorified body. 
and we're in for a heck of an upgrade. So the immaterial part of us is eternal. And what we also want to understand is that there is an unseen spiritual realm behind this material world that we see. The real you and me is spirit, as we said. God himself is spirit. And there are ministering spirits that God created. We know them as angels. And they're very powerful creatures. But then we also know that a third of these ministering spirits rebelled against God. We know them as demons. We may not be able to see them, but they're just as real as the data going across Wi-Fi Cellular data, network data, right now in this room. We just can't see it. They're immaterial. Do you remember in the Old Testament when Elisha's servant went to the door and found that the whole city was surrounded by the king of Aram and his horses and chariots? And he was frightened. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, he says, Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, Elisha answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open up his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened up the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, God gave him an ability to see past the material and to see the immaterial, the spiritual realm. He just pulled back that veil and gave him a little glimpse. What if we could see the spiritual realm? There'd be things happening all around us. So the whole point is this. The real you and the real me is spiritual. And there's a whole spiritual realm that we don't see. And that spiritual realm surrounds and influences and even indwells us. And so this is the central point that this passage is going to be making. So verse 1 said, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, I like this passage because I'm a hands-on person. And this says test. Think about that. Test it. This is a word that comes from the metallurgical realm where they would take a metal and they would examine and test it to find out whether or not it was genuine. Now imagine if someone tossed you a shiny gold coin. Uh, here we go, we'll give it a try. Here we go. And they said, this is pure gold, 24 karat. Well, it looks gold and it's shiny, but how would you know for sure that that's really gold? You'd have to test it. You'd have to examine it. And in the same way, that's what this verse says, that we're to test the spirits. And it's not referring to some kind of abstract test like, yeah, I mean, it sounds good. He looks credible. It must be true. That's not what it's talking about. This passage is referring to a very logical, a very practical test, which is what we're going to see. But before we get there, I want to look at something else that verse 1 says. This really stood out to me. It says we have to test the spirits because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Think about that imagery for a minute. They've gone out into the world like an invading army. 
You have these false prophets with the spirit of Antichrist in them, verse 3 says. And the spirit of falsehood, verse 6 says. And they've gone out into the world. They're everywhere. They infuse and they influence the culture, the government, the media, the school boards, the religions of the world. We talked about this a bit in chapter 2. And they even infuse and influence the church. And because of this, we have this exhortation in verse 1. To not believe every spirit, but to test it. Did you ever think of Satan as having a great commission of his own? Through spiritual influence, he trains up people who are opposed to Christ... And he fills them with all kinds of spiritual lies. And then what does he do? He sends them out. They've gone out into the world, it says. And they spread their message and they make disciples. They're on a mission, these people, whether they realize it or not. They've gone out, it says, into the world. But that's supposed to be our commission, right? We're the ones that are supposed to go out. Jesus said we're to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. All these false prophets have gone out into the world. How many Christians have gone out into the world? And not just, not just gone out into the world internationally, but what about locally? Have you gone out into the world? Have you gone out into your workplace? Have you gone out into your school? Into your community? With the spirit of Christ so that you may influence that community or those people for the kingdom of God and for his glory? I received a, an email from uh, the Answers in Genesis organization this week, and I really like Ken Ham and his organization, and they're looking for some additional teachers for the Answers Academy, which I didn't know they had. But what brought a smile to my face was this picture that accompanied the email. Here are these young students, and they're being trained up to go out into the world with the knowledge of the truth, with answers. I love that. And my son David, he went to Laterno University several years ago, and they have a mission statement painted on the wall of their aviation center, and it reads, claiming every workplace in every nation as our mission field. Laterno University graduates are professionals of ingenuity and Christ-like character who see life's work as a holy calling with eternal impact, answering God's call, every workplace, every nation. That's their mission statement. This would be our commission to go out into the world. We heard a little bit about the work of Dave and Melissa this morning. They, we can't go out maybe where they go. Maybe we can, but not all of us can. But you know what? We can get behind them. We can send them. We can support them. Coming up March 12th, we're going to have a mission conference. And many of our representatives from around the world and the local community are going to be here. And we're going to have an opportunity to learn more. How can I go out? How can I spread my influence? How can, I, how can God use me to spread his influence 
into the world, into my community. So it just strikes me that these antichrists have gone out into the world. And I think they're doing a pretty effective job when I look at the world around us. But we need to go out as believers. So this is the unseen truth. That behind every person is a spirit. And there's a spiritual realm that surrounds and influences every single person. And those who deny and oppose Christ have the spirit of antichrist. And they've gone out into the world. So for that reason, we can't just believe everything that we hear. We need to test the spirit so that we can be absolutely certain of whether the spiritual things a person says are of God or not. And so we need to look next then at the test of truth in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 says, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. That's a pretty practical test of truth, isn't it? It's not abstract at all. It's clear and it's concrete. Here's the test. What do they say about Jesus Christ? And specifically, do they say that he has come in the flesh? That's like a litmus test that you can apply to any teacher, prophet, speaker. Now, one of the first heresies of the church wasn't that Jesus is not God. It wasn't denying his deity. This was a heresy that began in the, in the late first century, just years after his ascension. And it was denying the humanity of Christ. It was saying that he was fully God, but he wasn't fully man. He only appeared to be a man, like a phantom. He was just a ghost or a spirit. And his whole death and resurrection was just an illusion because he wasn't actually a man. It's, it's, a, it's a heresy known as docetism. And it was quite common at the time. And so in John's second letter, which we'll come to in a month or so, Second John verse 7 says... Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Scripture is real clear. Jesus didn't just appear to be a man. He was human in every possible way. He experienced exhaustion, hunger, pain, even death. He was fully man. And at the same time, he was fully God. So why does God make such a big deal about this? About Jesus being fully human? And here's the reason. Because if Jesus didn't come in the flesh, if he didn't have a physical body, then he couldn't have died. And he couldn't have rose again from the dead. And so he couldn't have defeated sin and death. Our whole salvation depends on the fact that Jesus came in the flesh. We talked about that over Christmas, the incarnation. So because that's a bedrock truth of the faith, Satan wants to steal that away. There's another reason that I'll just bring up why 
it's important that Jesus came into the, in the flesh. And it, it has to do with how we approach God and relate to him. If Jesus wasn't human, then he can't sympathize with our struggles. He wouldn't know what it's like to be hungry or exhausted or persecuted or tempted, wounded, even dying. The things that we experience in human life, he wouldn't know what that's like. But he does know. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 say, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And it says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Isn't that cool? When you approach Jesus in the midst of these trials that we go through, he doesn't just send you a sympathy card. He sends you grace and he sends you mercy. He sends you help that we need to get through those trials. So because Jesus was flesh, he can sympathize with us and he can help us. So verse 3 says, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus, and specifically that he came in the flesh, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is in the world. That's pretty clear. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is the spirit of Antichrist. Let me put it this way. The atheist college professor, the agnostic reporter, the Muslim politician. These are not just well-intentioned people who don't share our same Christian values. They are the spirit of Antichrist. And you might say, Paul, that's really harsh. That's really judgmental. That's not from me. You can read it for yourself. It's the word of God. They're not the Antichrist, but they're like him in that they oppose or they deny Christ. They're the spirit of Antichrist. And this type of opposition will increase, increase, leading up to the Antichrist. And we talked about this a lot in... Uh, 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19, there's a, there's a whole message out there on that. But what's also interesting is that these, some at least, of these antichrists are numbered or were numbered among the people of God. Let me read you 1 John 2, 19. It says, they went out from us, the church, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, I want to be clear. They weren't believers who fell away, but they acted like believers. That's a whole point. They hung out with the church. They worshipped and fellowshiped with the church. They probably served in the church. Jesus described them as wolves in sheep's clothing. In other words, masters of disguise. They pretend to be from God. They're educated. They carry big Bibles. They wear big smiles. They sound smooth and eloquent and convincing. They seem genuine. But this doesn't mean that what they say is true. This is why we have to test the spirits. And one of the primary tests of the Spirit is what they say about Jesus. Specifically, did he come in the flesh? It's not the only test, 
but it's an important test. So then let's look at the standard of truth in verses 4 through 6. I'm off one slide. The standard of truth. I'll read through it. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They're from the world, and therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize a spirit of truth and a spirit of falsehood. So verse 4, it begins by speaking of the one who is in you. And it's referring, obviously, to the Holy Spirit that indwells believers. Now he said that every person is made up of both body and spirit, material and immaterial. Believers and unbelievers alike have a human spirit. But here in verse 4, it's talking about having another spirit, the Holy Spirit. So does this mean that a believer has two spirits? I want to just dig into that a little more. When we place our faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a miraculous thing happens. We become a new creation in Christ, and our mortal bodies become a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in and indwells us. And what's really kind of mysterious is that God's Holy Spirit is joined with our human spirit. And it's something that we cannot fully comprehend, but let me read you a couple passages. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 says, But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. There's a union of the Holy Spirit and the human spirit. And the result of this union is that our spirit that was alienated from God and referred to as dead becomes alive. We're born again and we become a new creation in Christ. We don't become deity, but we have a new spirit within us and we have God's spirit within us. They're joined together and yet they're still distinct. They're not exactly the same. Let me show you a verse that points to this distinction. It's Romans 8 verse 16. It says the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And so you see the capital S spirit and the lowercase s spirit there in the same verse. Well, the capital S is the Holy Spirit. The lowercase s is our human spirit. And so we're still in a body of flesh and our body is still subject to temptation and sin. But our spirit is joined with the Holy Spirit, and we become a child of God. We're born of the Spirit, Scripture says. And so, because we're born of the Spirit, this is why verse 4 says, You, dear children, are from God. That's the source of your new being now. You're born of God. And it says, You've overcome them, meaning those who, op who are opposed to God. Because the one who is now in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The spirit of Antichrist, Satan. God's spirit gives us victory over sin and death. 
And he gives us the ability to recognize error and to resist the temptation of the devil. And we're going to see more on this in just a minute. But when you look around you in the world, you see a lot of things happening. And you may not feel like you've overcome those who are in the world. I sometimes feel like we're being overwhelmed by those who are in the world. And we can lose our perspective. But we've got to run to the truth of Scripture. And it says that you have overcome them. Because the one who's in you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than the one that is influencing and indwelling them. You have the winning hand. And God's spirit ensures it. He's your seal. He's a promise, a guarantee of your inheritance in heaven. So those who are believers, it says, are from God. Now look at verse 5. They are from the world. And therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. Now, we studied this whole idea of the world back in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. And I want to just read that again. It said, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, does not come from the Father, but from the world. And we saw that this phrase, the world, it's used like 133 times in Scripture. It can have three different meanings, but most of the time it means what it does in our passage here. So it's not, it's the, it's the Greek word cosmos, where we get cosmos or cosmetology, but it's not cosmology. Cosmetology, isn't that beauty makeup? <laughs> We're talking celestial, cosmology. So... Here, it's not speaking of the world, meaning the planet. And it's not speaking of the world, meaning the people in the planet, like God so loved the world, the people. It's speaking of the worldly system. And back then, we defined it, the world, as an organized system headed by Satan, designed to keep God out. World, cosmos, means a system, an organized system. And so, when we talk about the world, this is what it's talking about. It's a collection of humanity headed by Satan that is in rebellion against God. That's the world. And it says that those who deny the true Christ are from the world. They're a product of its values and its viewpoints. And those are not shaped by the Holy Spirit, but by the spirit of Antichrist. And so... When they speak, verse 5 says, they speak from the viewpoint of the world. And guess what? The world listens to them. They're from the world. They speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. Now, a person's theology will determine their standard of truth. And your standard of truth will have a huge impact on the things you do. Have you, have you been stunned lately to hear people saying the most outrageous things, things that you know are wrong and are evil, but they're saying these things and everybody's nodding, yeah, that's right, that's good. And if you're opposed to that, you're wrong and you're evil. And they will vigorously defend 
this ridiculous notion. Well, people who are otherwise intelligent are saying the craziest things. Like, there are more than two genders. They say, a person can be whatever gender they want. And if you don't accept this, you're hateful. You're an evil person. Or they say, if you want to reduce crime, you just need to get rid of the police. Or if you want to solve the drug problem, we just need to legalize all drugs and the problem goes away. These are crazy things. I mean, do you ever just shake your head and go, where are they coming from? Well, wonder no more. <laughs> they come from the world. And they speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. This is what verse 5 says. Now you might say, well, we need to fight these people. We need to take back control of our country. And there's nothing wrong with exercising our civic responsibility. We're to be good citizens. But we need to be really careful about how we go about it. Because God still loves these people. And Christ died for these people. Whether in our country or in the foreign nations that we've been talking about this morning. And besides that. Listen to Ephesians 6 verse 12. It says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, it's not the material people that are fighting against us. It's the spirit that's in them and influencing them and animating them. That's where our battle is. How do you fight a spiritual battle? With spiritual weapons. Prayer. The word of God. That's how we need to fight this battle primarily. We need to point people to the truth of the gospel. We need to let them know that God loves them and he can, can, he can transform them. He can give them a hope and a purpose. He can give them genuine life. So the, the solution is more spiritual than political. And again, I'm not saying there's no place for politics, but politics alone will never change a human heart. Only the gospel, only Jesus Christ can change a human heart. And once the heart changes, all of these other behaviors change because they have a new value system, a new spirit within them. I read this news article this week on a, a lady named Kaya Jones, and she's a, a, a singer for the Pussycat Dolls. Now, I don't have this on my playlist. <laughs> I never even heard of the Pussycat Dolls, but it's a thing. Anybody? Pussycat Doll fan? <laughs> she described growing up in the music industry, and it, it was just really a difficult place to grow up. And she described how at a young age, she had three abortions. And she said, quote, I was completely enchained and bonded to the devil where I was living in my worst self. Now, you could go up to her and go, abortion's wrong. You're a fool. You can hit her over the head. You know, and that's not going to change what she's doing. She needs a change of heart. And this article went on to describe how she, quote, turned her life around and started following Jesus Christ. And she found the grace and forgiveness at the foot of the cross, it said. And now this woman is an advocate for life. 
See, it took an inward change, a change of her spirit before her outward behaviors changed. So yes, we want to have good laws. We want to have moral laws. But at the end of the day, we're not going to legally drive anybody to Christ. It takes the gospel, and that's the job of the church. We need to be going out into the world, not just staying in here. So, verse 5 says, they are from the world. And verse 6 says, we're from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Now, it's not saying that when you go out and you say something, they go, Christian, I'm not listening to you. I mean, it kind of sounds like that, but that's not what it's saying. When it says they do not listen to us, it's not referring to you and me. It's referring to the collective testimony of the apostles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, James, Jude. That's the us it's talking about. Remember how this letter began in chapter 1, verse 1? It said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So it was the apostles that received this calling, this commission from the Lord. And so this is what the Lord, the world won't listen to. They will not listen to the inspired word of God spoken through the apostles. We have this with the same collective testimony of the apostles right here. So what it's saying is they won't listen to the word of God. And the word of God is our standard of truth. Look at what else verse 6 says. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. It's the word of God. Now, right from the beginning, Satan's approach, he's the deceiver. And his approach has been to get people to doubt and to deny and to distort the word of God. Right there in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, it says, Did God really say, these are the words of Satan, Did God really say? You should doubt that. I don't think he really said that. And then he goes, he says, you will not surely die. In other words, he's denying what God had said. And then he starts distorting it again. Okay, he might have said that, but he just knows that if you eat of that, your eyes will be opened and you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. So now he's distorting the truth. And so Satan is all about deception. And he's doing a pretty good job of it too. There was a... a a in-depth study by the Barna Group that found that 50% of Americans believe the Bible, Quran, and the Book of Mormon hold different expressions of the same truths. That's a pretty good deception, isn't it? So how do we discern the spirits? We have to be like the Bereans and we have to go to the scripture and see if it is true. We have to read and study and hear and understand the word of God so that we're not what scripture says, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful schemes. That's Ephesians 4.14. If we don't know the word of God, we're going to fall victim to their distortions. We heard a beautiful testimony last Sunday at the sharing service. Someone said, I was a believer, but I didn't yet really know the word of God. I wasn't grounded. I wasn't rooted in it. And so I was misled in some things. We need to know the word of God. It's our standard of truth. 
Now here's the thing, we can't understand the word of God on our own. But when our spirit is joined with the spirit of God, now we have this ability to understand and apply the truth of God's word. The Spirit gives us this ability. Let me read you 1 Corinthians 2.12. It says, We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. And a verse later, it says, A man without the Spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they're foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So you go out with the truth of God to many people, you know, God is pro-life. You know, he believes in the marriage of one man to one. You go out with that kind of truth. They're not going to accept it. It's foolishness to them. And they can't understand it because it's spiritually discerned. You got to go to the gospel. You got to go to the, to the heart, to their spirit. There has to be a transformation there first. So it's the spirit of God which gives us the ability to discern truth and error. And it's the, the Spirit of God that gives us the ability to understand Scripture, which is our absolute standard of right and wrong. So, this is not an abstract feeling, discerning truth. It's a very clear and concise test that God gives us. So, I didn't get to put together a, a wrap-up slide this morning, but let me just hit a couple points. The two parts of every person, your Body and your spirit, material and immaterial. And the real you and the real me is not your body, it's your spirit. And there's this unseen spiritual realm all around us. And this spiritual realm influences us. And part of that spiritual realm is the spirit of Antichrist. And that spirit has gone out into the world. So the test of truth, what do they say about Jesus? Who was he? Was he God who came in the flesh, who died, buried, rose again for our sin, for our forgiveness? Every spirit that doesn't acknowledge this is the spirit of Antichrist. And then this amazing thing, when we place our faith in Christ and our human spirit which is alienated from God, is joined to God's Holy Spirit. And he comes in and he dwells within us. And we become a new creation with the new spirit and the Holy Spirit. Now those who deny this truth about Christ, they're from the world. They're a product of its values and viewpoints. And those viewpoints are not shaped by the Holy Spirit. They're shaped by the spirit of Antichrist. And so our struggle is not against the flesh and blood. It's not against the body, the, the people per se, but the spiritual forces. The spiritual forces. Now, we can take a two-pronged approach. Remember Nehemiah? The, he had this beautiful balance. He said, they were, they were being threatened by a spiritual enemy and a physical enemy. So it says, we prayed to our God and we took up weapons. In other words, we attacked it with both spiritual weapons and physical weapons because the enemy was both spiritual and physical. There are things that we can do. We're not going to leave our doors open at night. We're not going to you know, leave ourselves vulnerable. We have to take certain physical defenses, but our primary weapon is spiritual 
we go to the Lord in prayer. We stay grounded in his word. We stay in a community of believers. And we spread that truth into the world. So the spirit gives us the ability to understand this word. Even as I'm speaking, the spirit of God is in you. And it's taking what is here. And it's explaining it. And, it, and you probably, maybe you felt the spirit of God putting his finger on areas of your heart. And saying, ooh, I need to work on that. That's the Spirit of God working in you. So, God wants us to be absolutely certain of spiritual discernment. And so, he's given us this perfect test. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, left to ourselves, we're dead. We're worthless. We're hopeless. We're helpless. But God, you came down. You came down into our world. And you took our place so that we might came in the flesh, Lord. And you died and you rose again. And you gave us your spirit. You went away so that you could send your Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ living in us 24-7. You made us new creations in Christ, God. The old is gone, the new has come. Praise God. And yet, Lord, we live in this body of flesh. We're subject to the temptations of the world. And God, we fall to those far more than we ought. We take up the wrong kinds of weapons and fight the wrong kinds of battles. God, help us. Help us. By your spirit, give us wisdom. God, give us the ability to resist temptation. Give us clarity on what your word says. And give us the grace to speak the truth in love. That we might go out and we might transform this world around us. So God, help us in this. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.